We're on a wonderful series called The Ministry of Jesus. And as many of you know, we're going through episodes and teachings in the life of Jesus Christ. And it has been so wonderful. Today, we come to a challenging passage of scripture. And this passage of scripture is called, let me get over to it here, The Olivet Discourse. And you might think, what is that? I'm so glad you asked. So the Olivet Discourse, a discourse, of course, is a teaching or a lecture. And the only reason they call it Olivet is that it took place on top of the Mount of Olives, which is right east of Jerusalem. And it is an amazing vantage point for looking at the Temple Mount and the city of Jerusalem. And I'm going to show you that vantage point here in a minute. Now, you guys already probably know this, but Jesus Christ, his, his, the word Christ is not his last name. He wasn't from the Christ family, you know? So Christ, Christ is a Greek word that means anointed. Messiah is a Hebrew word that means anointed. And in the Old Testament, there were three leadership offices that got anointed. A king, a high priest, and a prophet. And the reason I have the word prophet highlighted is today Jesus has his prophet hat on. He's going to function as a prophet like the Old Testament prophets, like Isaiah or Jeremiah. And he's going to give a prophecy that has been interpreted several different ways. And so today I'm going to give you a viewpoint. Tony agrees with me, but I didn't even get a chance to check with all the leadership. Some of you may disagree with me on my interpretation And I respect that. We respect the right of a person to read their Bible for themselves and come to their own conclusions. But this is a challenging passage and we are gonna tackle it. It is, um, it's it's an interpretation puzzle to solve. What is Jesus teaching in the Olivet Discourse? And this is the last week of his life. His 12 apostles are asking him, they say, Jesus, the temple is amazing. And he says, you know, every single stone of this temple is going to be thrown down. And they ask him about it, and he gives us the Olivet Discourse. Can I show you what it looks like on the top of the Mount of Olives? So this is, um, so I was a tourist with my daughter in 2008. Chris Gordillo was on this trip as well. And this is what it, oh, I got to go back. So we are looking south of Jerusalem, and now we're spanning across Jerusalem, which is on a gentle curved hill. And right in front of that curved hill is a sharper hill that's been leveled off, and you can see that that mosque on top of it. By the way, that's my daughter. And the guy with the black hair down at the bottom is Chris Gordillo. So that building with the gold dome is not the temple. It's not the Hebrew, the Jewish temple. That was destroyed by an army of Romans in 70 AD. About 700 years later, Muslim people came in and built a mosque, one with a silver dome where they actually have worship, and one with a gold dome, which is symbolic in in the Muslim, in the Islamic faith. That's at about approximately the same position as the temple that the apostles were asking Jesus about. So here's a model 
of that temple. So this is probably approximately what Jesus and his disciples were looking at when he gave the Olivet Discourse. You can see it's a beautiful building. It was covered with gold. It was made of stones that were, there were many, many tons, each stone. And you can see the, the open courts, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women. Uh, to the left is probably where the Solomon's colonnade was that you read about in the book of Acts. That's what they were looking at. Now this story is in three different gospels. We're gonna read it in one gospel, and I'm gonna tell you why I picked the book of Luke. And so, did you know that the, the different gospels in the Bible were written targeting different audiences? And so the book of Matthew, the first of the gospels, was written by a Jewish man for a Jewish audience, the book of Mark, Mark was Jewish, uh, but he wrote for the Romans, and it, it's geared for the Romans, and that's why it's one of the shorter books. The book of Luke, Luke was not Jewish, he was a Gentile man, he was a physician, and we first learn about Luke in the city of Troas, which is right next to Macedonia in a Greek area of the world. And so, so Matthew values the Old Testament. Mark values what the Romans valued, um, authority, action, long-standing tradition, and the Greeks valued knowledge. The key to understanding the Olivet Discourse is the Old Testament. The Old Testament's gonna unlock it for us, and Matthew's not gonna tell us anything about the Old Testament because he assumes you already know because you're a Jewish audience. And he, assume, he assumes you're gonna know the language of the prophets, the symbolism, the imagery of the Old Testament. Mark is gonna write about it some, but writing to Romans, he's gonna get right to the point. That's why Mark is only 16 chapters. Luke, we turn to Luke, because he's gonna clarify it for us, and he's gonna speak most plainly about this prophecy and so we're gonna look at the scripture in Luke, but we're gonna refer back to the book of Matthew a tiny bit uh, towards the end of this. This is gonna take three to five minutes longer than our normal message. I hope you guys are willing to do a deep dive into the Bible. Are you with me? So, here we go. Some of his disciples were remarking about the temple, how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another, every one of them will be thrown down. So I just gotta tell you, this was inconceivable. This is like somebody saying, you know where the Fort Lauderdale Airport is? In 50 years, that's gonna be a sugar cane field. And you're like, I, I don't understand. Like, I don't, I don't get what you're talking about. Teacher, they ask, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? What's the two, by the way, we're gonna read almost all of Luke chapter 23, 21, I mean. What's the two questions on the table? The two questions on the table are, when will the temple be destroyed? And 
What are the signs that the temple destruction is about to happen? Now, many people take this passage of scripture to be talking about Jesus's final return, the second coming of Christ, which by the way, we as the Broward Church do solidly affirm the second return of Christ as Orthodox Christian teaching. We believe Jesus is coming back, that there will be a final resurrection and judgment day but I'm gonna present a view where I don't think that's primarily what Jesus is talking about. It's, they did not ask him, when is your return and the judgment day? There might be some symbolism in there, but I don't believe it's the main topic here. He replied, watch out that you are not deceived. Here comes the prophecy. For many will come in my name claiming, I am he and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Now, in our Western 21st century thinking, as soon as we hear this phrase, the end, we're like, the end of the universe, the end of the world. Like, that means Jesus is coming back. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you a slide here and a few slides after we're done with our reading. I think he's talking about a different end. I'll show you what I mean here in a few minutes. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs in heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the synagogues and put you in prison and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. By the way, I think this promise of giving us words is not a full promise to you and me today. You need to do your Bible homework, okay? I'm not sure if somebody asks you a question that God's going to give you a miraculous answer in your head immediately. You ought to do your homework. I hope that God is functioning in our lives like this, where he's helping us with our answers. But these were for guys who did not yet have the New Testament, and they were going to bear witness to Jesus in an extraordinary way as the 12 apostles. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. So that's kind of a contradiction. They're going to put you to death, but not a hair of your head's going to perish. So obviously he's talking about eternal life there. Stand firm and you will win life. Now he gets into some more core prophecy. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those of you who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. And then he says something extraordinary here. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. So Jesus is saying, 
when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, that will be in fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophets. Like many of you may never have even heard that Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, but I believe that's what he's talking about. And he actually places a great deal of significance to that moment in time. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. What people? The Jewish people. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. We finished our text. Easy peasy, right? So I just wanted to share, share with you that I think this phrase that, that Jesus is using, this generation will certainly not pass away. I want to talk about this for a minute. There's two different ways to interpret it. One is what you see here at face value. So he's saying in the next 35 to 40 years, all of this stuff is going to happen. All of it's going to happen and it's going to be finished. Everything I just prophesied. Some people translate it as Truly, I tell you, this race, like the human race, the human race will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now, I've read commentaries, I've listened to YouTube videos, I've really looked into this, and uh, I'm landing on, he's saying this face value thing, he's saying this generation will not pass away, like these things are actually gonna happen in the next 35 or 40 years. I think that's what he's saying here. And let me tell you what I think he means by the end. Do you remember, we already read this. Do you remember he said, you'll hear of wars and uprisings. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. What ended when Jerusalem was destroyed? Let me show you something here. Temple worship ended. Temple worship had lasted since the Moses Tabernacle in about 1400 BC. It lasted 1500 years. I put an asterisk here because there was a 70 year period of time where the temple was destroyed and rebuilt. But other than that, 
The Jewish people have been worshiping in a temple for 1,500 years. The high priesthood started with Moses' brother Aaron and had never stopped all through their history. Now listen, the United States is less than 300 years old. This is a big ending. This is a big deal. The nation of Israel ended. Now I know many of you know it was recreated in 1948, but that was after almost 2,000 years of the Jewish people existing, but their nation not existing. The nation of Israel ended. The promised land, there's an asterisk, the promised land was conditional. The promise was conditional. God says, I promise this land to the Jewish people if you keep my covenant, the Moses covenant. Well, they didn't. They did not keep it. And so sure enough, they lost the promised land. They were, not only was Jerusalem destroyed, but the Roman army physically drove all the Jews out of the Palestine area in 70 AD. The Moses covenant began to come to an end. You can read, if you're a, a scholar here, read Hebrews chapter eight, chapter nine, and chapter 10. It explains that real clearly. And the role of the Jewish people as God's chosen people now had an interesting new twist to it. They were supposed to accept Jesus now that he came as their king. Anybody who chose Jesus as their king got to remain the chosen people, both Jews and Gentiles, but the Jews that did not take Jesus as their king were no longer a part of the chosen people. That means today, I believe my biblical interpretation of what I see in the scriptures is God's chosen people, Jews and Gentiles, is the church. Because we need to have King Jesus to be his chosen people. A lot of things ended in 70 AD. Can you see that? What's our key to all this? It's the Old Testament. You guys holding on with me okay? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to briefly look through some keys in the Old Testament to finish unpacking the Olivet Discourse. We're going to look at the imagery. Do you remember Jesus said, like, the heavens are going to be shaken, the sun, moon, and stars will turn dark? We're going to look at that imagery and see what we can get out of that. Now, if you don't know how the Old Testament language works, here's what tends to happen for us we tend to interpret the prophetic language of Jesus like a sci-fi movie, like a science fiction movie, or a news headline, or like a Marvel movie, you know? Rather than using what Jesus was using in his prophecy, he was referring back to Isaiah 34. He was referring, he literally is quoting, in Matthew, it's a flat out quote. He quotes Isaiah 13. He alludes to Isaiah 34. He quotes Daniel chapter seven. He's using those quotes. And if you don't know that, you're gonna end up possibly having a wrong interpretation of the Bible. So I used to think growing up, when Jesus came back, I was gonna see him in a cloud, ripping across the sky. The sky was gonna tear back like a scroll. 
And maybe it will. But the language of the Old Testament was used symbolically to also talk about other things with that kind of language. I'll show you. In Isaiah 34, Jesus alluded to this in what we just read. It says, all the stars in the sky will fade away. The sky will roll up like a scroll. All its stars will wither like a leaf withers and falls from a vine or a fig withers and falls from a tree. Now, the interesting thing about this is if you read Isaiah 34, this is a prophecy that an army is going to come along, a foreign army, and conquer the neighboring country of Edom. That's what it's about. So we don't know of any far stars falling from the sky when Edom was conquered back then. I believe this is imagery. This is exaggerated language. It's poetic language about a very, very big event in Edom's history. They got conquered by a foreign army. I'll show you the other thing that Jesus alludes to. It's Isaiah 13. We're going to look at two slides of Isaiah 13. They come from faraway lands, from the ends of the heaven, the Lord and the weapons of his wrath, his anger, to destroy the whole country. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Now, as soon as you hear the term day of the Lord, the first thing you think is, this passage is about Jesus' second return, the judgment day, resurrection day. That's what the day of the Lord means. But when you read this chapter in Isaiah, this is a prophecy that an army is going to come from Persia and conquer the Babylonians because the Babylonians had mistreated many nations, including Israel. This is a prophecy about a military conquest. Let's read on. Let's read the next, the, the final slide for Isaiah 13 here. He used the phrase, the day of the Lord, again. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. In the ancient world, the people thought the stars in the sky were gods. They thought they were gods. And when nations fought against nations, people thought their nation had their own set of gods. We got the gods of the Egyptians against the gods of the Assyrians or the gods of the Babylonians or the gods of the Persians. People thought they had their own sets of gods. And you guys know a lot of people who have come to power began to think they're a god, not a human. That's happened many times in history. Like in ancient Egypt, they thought Pharaoh was associated with the sun god. And so... When ancient people would hear the heavens were shaken, shaken, they would take it as, and I've got that listed here, they would take it as geopolitical change. So the idea of the day of the Lord does mean the second coming of Christ sometimes. It's used more often in the Old Testament to mean any catastrophic punishment from God. 
So the day of the Lord was God's going to bring down the hammer. He's, he's going to punish in a dramatic fashion somebody or some nation that has done wrong. And so these cosmological events, the heavens being shaken, the sun and the moon turning to blood, this is um, meaning a profound geopolitical change that an empire is going to conquer another empire or that kings are going to be killed or deposed. The imagery in Isaiah 13, that prophecy was fulfilled in 439 BC when Persia conquered Babylon miraculously without a battle. But we know like secular, outside of the Bible, secular history has a clear recording and they don't have any recording of the, the stars turning to blood and anything falling out of the sky. We do this in the English language. We just do it less poetically. We use hyperbolic language all the time. What does it mean when somebody says, he's blowing up my phone? That does not mean your, your phone is encrusted with explosives. That's not what it means. What does it mean the dolphins killed the bills? It doesn't mean 53 guys on the roster are now in jail for murder. That's not what it means. What it means is the time to be happy. That's what it means. You could say, you could say the trip took forever. No, it did not take forever. You could say, I've told you this a thousand times. Now for parents, <laughs> that might be true. Usually, usually that's exaggeration. What about Jesus coming on the clouds? Now, according to a scholar named Bruce Gore, I didn't track this down to fact check it, but Bruce Gore said that um, this is only mentioned once in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter seven. It may be mentioned elsewhere. Certainly clouds are mentioned elsewhere, but the idea of the son of man coming on the clouds, I believe is only found in Daniel chapter seven. This is a very important scripture to the first century people. The first century people treated the book of Daniel and the book of Isaiah and the book of Zechariah like we treat the book of Revelation. They were trying to study those books to figure out what was gonna happen next. Daniel chapter seven. In my vision, this is the prophet Daniel speaking. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. By the way, we believe, most Bible scholars believe that Jesus called himself the son of man, not only to make a statement about his combination of divinity and humanity, but to directly refer to Daniel chapter seven, verse 13. He was pointing the people of his day back to this prophecy. The Jewish people knew this. There before me was one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. We think we have our, the, our first window of the Trinity in the entire Bible here in Daniel chapter seven, because we believe that the Ancient of Days is God the Father and the Son of Man is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power, all nations, and people of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So 
When Jesus comes on the clouds, he's coming to receive authority. It doesn't paint a picture of Jesus coming on the clouds to reveal himself to humanity in this particular passage. He's, he's coming to receive authority. I'm gonna give you an interpretation here. You can agree with it or not agree with it, but I'm just gonna show you what I believe is going on here. I believe that Jesus came on the clouds, figuratively speaking, not literally, in 70 AD, to punish the nation of Israel, which would not recognize his authority, and to take up authority over the kingdom of God, which for us is the church. And so I believe there was a limited return of Christ, not for the judgment day, not for the resurrection day, but a limited return of Christ in, in the Old Testament language of coming to give not just a punishment to the nation of Israel, but a final punishment to the nation of Israel in the tradition of the prophets that were before him. He was the greatest and the final of the Old Testament prophets. Now the last thing that we're gonna look at as far as Old Testament keys is we're gonna take a brief look into the Moses covenant, and I believe Jesus is fulfilling the Moses covenant. Bear with my amateur graphics, okay? So imagine that this is Deuteronomy chapter 28. I know you guys all know Deuteronomy, I'm just kidding. So Deuteronomy chapter 28 is the details of the covenant of Moses. Now the covenant of Moses was very, very important. It functioned like our Constitution of the United States, plus it had religious significance. It was very important in the Old Testament. All of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Elijah, Ezekiel, all the prophets, their job was to enforce the Moses Covenant. All the things those Old Testament prophets prophesied as punishments or consequences, they were not making it up as they go. They were referring back to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and calling on specific consequences already listed in the Old Covenant contract, the Old Covenant of Moses. Now God knows that we're gonna be disobedient, so he gives blessings and he gives curses, and there's a lot more curses than there is blessings. These blessings are wonderful, but God knows that we're gonna sin and we're gonna rebel. So I'm gonna to read to you um, one little section out of this covenant, but before that, you get to see my Google images of a little soldier guys. So at least three times, in this section of curses, God says, if you guys disobey and rebel, among all the other curses, I'm gonna send you foreign armies. But he repeats this a minimum of three times in one chapter. He goes, I'm gonna send foreign armies, I'm gonna send foreign armies, I'm gonna send foreign armies. And this becomes a major feature in all of Old Testament history. Listen to this one section I wanted to read to you from the covenant. The Lord will also bring on you every kind of sickness and disaster not recorded in this book of the law. 
until you are destroyed. This is God talking to his chosen people. You who were numerous as the stars in the sky will be left but few in number because you did not obey the Lord your God just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and increase in number. Listen to this. So it will please him to ruin and destroy you. You will be uprooted from the land you entered to possess. So this is really, really, I believe one of the things we learn from today's sermon is a, a, a reappreciation of the fear of God and the wrath of God. God is not afraid to use foreign armies to punish Israel. So do you remember Jesus said this? He said this in the Olivet Discourse. He said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by the armies, you'll know that its desolation is near. Then let those in Judea get out. Let those in the city get out. In the country, don't come in. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. Jesus is enforcing the Moses covenant one last time. So brief history of Israel. We started with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We get the Ten Commandments and the Moses Covenant. We have a period of time without kings. We have a period of time with kings. Look at this. As soon, just as soon as Moses and his successor Joshua passed away, the Israelites immediately rebelled and God immediately sent a foreign army. He sent the Canaanites under the judgeship of Deborah with 900 iron chariots, it said, to punish the Israelites. Next, he sends in Gideon, just two chapters later, he sends a different foreign army, the Midianites, to punish Israel. Next, he sends the Philistines to punish Samson, the guy with the long hair, married Delilah, bad marriage move. You've probably heard that story. Then they, they weren't able to get rid of the Philistines. And a couple hundred years later, King Saul's got to deal with the Philistines. David and Goliath, you know those stories in the Old Testament. And then you have, a couple of hundred years later, God sends a foreign army, Assyria, that had the capital city of Nineveh, to literally destroy, finally, a northern kingdom of Israel. The reason there's this little separation is that the nation of Israel had a civil war that never got resolved, and they had a northern kingdom that was so bad that God punished them with the nation of Assyria. And then Judah didn't do much better, the southern kingdom, and they punished them with Babylon. Do you see a pattern here? It's a major, major part of the history of the Old Testament, and Jesus is not randomly pulling out a prophecy out of thin air. It's based in the covenant of Moses. It uses the language of the prophets. And I believe what is happening here is that G could Jesus, as the greatest prophet, be proclaiming the final, climactic, catastrophic punishment of God through a foreign army? I think this is what's happening in the Olivet Discourse. I believe you started all the way back in the covenant with the Ten Commandments, and now even past the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, you have one final punishment from the nation of Rome. This was a big deal for the entire Mediterranean world. If you go today as a tourist to Rome, you can see this arch that was built 
in celebration of Vespasian and his son Titus. This is called the Arch of Titus. You can see it, you can take photos as a tourist. Conquering the nation of Israel and tearing down and destroying the city of Jerusalem. Carved inside this, this arch is this. I know it's a little hard to make out, but you can sure see the, the, the menorah. Can't you see that? The gold candlestick that was inside the holy place in the temple in Jerusalem. The Roman army hauled that away, hauled that away as spoils of war. Do you remember how Jesus said it's going to be really, really horrible in those days? He said, if you're a pregnant woman or a nursing mother, he's just trying to describe how horrible it's going to be. Listen to what a historian said who was actually on site, a man named Flavius Josephus. He was not a Christian, but he was a Jewish man who had been enslaved by the Romans and he was working for the Romans. And here's what he said. He was on site when Jerusalem was destroyed. Now the number of those who were carried captive during this whole war collected to be 97,000, as was the number that perished during the whole siege, 1,100,000. What, what Josephus is saying, this is old language, it was translated in the 1700s, sorry for the old language. He's saying 100,000, 97,000 Jewish people got taken slaves and 1,100,000 Jewish people right there in that city were put to death. That's what he's saying. This is what Jesus was warning his followers about. Get out of the city, get out, and don't come into the city. People were all streaming to Jerusalem to be saved from the Roman army, and Jesus said, don't do that. That's the wrong strategy, because you're gonna get trapped inside of that city. And so, so this is the Gentile account from Luke, all right? Luke makes it simple for us. He says, he says, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, don't go in, get out of there. I want to read to you just two slides of Matthew's account with Hebrew poetic language from the Old Testament. This is the Matthew version. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Now listen to his language. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Did you catch that Luke never brought up Noah? <laughs> He's like, maybe you guys don't even know about Noah, you know? For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. Who got taken all away? So it looks like it's not talking about Noah. It looks like it's talking about the people who were not in the ark. Do you see that? So these people, the great mass of people, they're not people of God. They're not going to be saved by the ark, Noah and the ark. They're not going to be saved by it. They are taken away. Now there's a doctrine of being 
taken away called the rapture. And some of you, maybe many of you, are familiar with that doctrine. I do not hold to the doctrine of the rapture. There are people, even our fellowship of churches, who support the doctrine of the rapture. I don't think it's a salvation issue. I respect their convictions. But what I see here is that the bad guys got taken away, not the good guys. So it's not like you're a Christian, like the Left Behind movie series and book series from the 1970s. It's not like the Christians are driving along, whoop, the Christian gets pulled out of his car on Judgment Day. The bad guys are the ones who are getting taken away. And so listen to how he, he uh, finishes this language. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill, one will be taken and the other left. You see, if you don't know the Old Testament language and you don't know the Old Testament stories, this can become a lot more confusing. Well, this is simply Matthew's version of get out of Jerusalem or you're going to be taken, not by God in a rapture, but by Roman soldiers as a slave. Those are the people who are going to be taken. And that's what I believe he means by one is taken and the other left. I've already explained that. Listen, a, a historian, two different historians confirm what's going on here. I'll read one of them. A guy named Epiphanius, who was a, a, a bishop of a, a Salamis, which was a city in Cyprus. He wrote this in about 320 AD. He said, after the exodus from Jerusalem, when all the disciples, that was the Christians, went to live in Pella, because Christ had told them to leave Jerusalem and go away since it would undergo a siege. Because of this advice, they lived in Perea, that would be fleeing to the mountains. They lived in Perea after having moved to that place, as I said. A very important historian named Eusebius echoes what Epiphanius says right here. The, the early church historians knew what the deal was and it was not the rapture it was a warning from Christ because of this impending siege. So as we kind of conclude the interpretation of this, I believe that the Olivet Discourse is a local prophecy. By local, I mean it happened within the lifetime of the people Jesus was prophesying to. I do believe there's a little bit of an echo, a little bit of a foreshadowing pointing forward to Jesus' final return. I do believe that. And one of the reasons I believe that is if you go to Matthew chapter 25, the Jewish version of the story, you see a day of the Lord now and a day of the Lord in the future. You see in chapter 24, Matthew's talking about a day of the Lord for that generation. But in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells three parables and all of them are actually talking about the final judgment day when Jesus comes back. Obviously, we're not gonna read it this morning. But the parable of the 10 virgins with the 10 lambs, the parable of the talents, the parable of the sheep and goats, all of these on the heels of the Olivet Discourse are all pointing towards the final return of Christ. And so my conclusion on the Olivet Discourse is that Jesus is prophesying a military destruction like the prophets of old in answer to the apostles' question about when the temple would be torn down. I think he's warning the Christians to get out of Jerusalem. 
I don't think he's talking about the, Roman, the, the rapture, but I think he's talking about Roman slavery. And I think he's talking about the immediate fall of Jerusalem was foreshadowing to the final destruction of Israel. I have a takeaway as we go to the Lord's Supper. So here's a life application I think we can think about. The status of those Jewish people who were punished in AD 70 is our status as well. It's not like, oh gosh, that was really unfortunate for the Jewish people back then. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. The wrath of God back then was for that event, but the wrath of God is always angry about sin. Is God angry today about human trafficking? Is God angry today about mass shootings? Is God angry today about, about racism? Like you may think that God became a Christian and he's no longer angry, but I'm, I'm here to tell you, I'm here to tell you there's only one protection, there's only one protection from the wrath of God, and this is our thought as we go to the Lord's Supper. In Romans 5 it says, since we have now been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Let's pray together and be grateful for the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ to protect us from the wrath of God. Holy Father, help us to revere you. Help us to love you, but also to fear you. Help us to, be, to really appreciate and be grateful for what was accomplished on the cross to rescue you and make us right with you and reconciled with you rather than victims of your wrath. We pray in your son's name. Amen.